Earthbed Muscle is a grassroots supplement company created by some of the best strength coaches in the United States to provide their athletes with wholesome supplements. Earthbed Muscle has changed the supplement industry with their minimal ingredient approach to sports nutrition. Dane's platform is also brought to you by the Acceleration Diet. The Acceleration Diet is a customized weight loss program catered to each individual, their needs, and their schedule. Accelerate your metabolism today with the Acceleration Diet. Finally, Dane's platform is also brought to you by Holistic Encapsulations. Holistic Encapsulations provides organic hemp extract with an incredible 27 to 1 CBD ratio. Loaded with CBDs, hemp extract has been shown to decrease anxiety, have a positive impact on cancer, improve sleep, improve brain function, and decrease inflammation. Head over to HolisticEncapsulations.com today and get on the path to holistic recovery. Okay, you ready? All right, so we're here at Dane's Platform with Coach Scott Kapos, the throws coach at uh, Nebraska, and Scott is one of the best throws coaches in the United States, if you ask me. He's got an incredible resume, and if you head over to Nebraska's website, you know, before I did this interview, I, I wanted, I asked Scott, you know, hey, could you send me your, your bio just so I could, you know, share this with everybody and go over everything, because I, I know who Scott is, but, you know, many... Many people don't know who you are, Scott, and and what I found amusing when I'm reading your bio is that there's 100 plus NCAA qualifiers, 50 plus Big Ten champions, 50 plus All Americans. So I found it amusing that I'm sitting there reading this like there's you've had you've had so many NCAA qualifiers and so many Big Ten champs that they're not that they they basically just stopped keeping track, and I. I wanted to know if, if you have the exact numbers on all that, and including your NCAA championships that you've coached, or if you just had so many that you sit there and you're like, ah, screw it, I can't, I can't keep track of all these. Well, I really actually don't don't keep track very much. I don't really know how many NCAA champions. I know NCAA champions I've coached two. Okay. Uh, actually, one in the long jump, and then one recently in the discus. And I've coached probably about 20 different athletes to top top six finishes in the NCAA. But I have no idea how many All-Americans or conference champions I coached. I really don't keep track. Okay. All right. So so Scott also threw – he was a Big Ten champ. He threw at uh, Indiana when he was in college. He was – I think, Scott, you might – did you win two or three Big Ten titles? I won two Big Ten titles. I finished uh, second five times, and I had won third place. Okay. So I was pretty consistent, but the Big Ten wasn't quite as uh, strong as it is now. Okay, so your PR was like was around sixty three feet, and you, I just learned this yesterday that he's also Scott's also Canadian. So you've competed in? Did you did you compete in Commonwealth Games? Yeah, I competed for Canada. My father immigrated uh, to the United States. He was a natural uh, naturalized citizen here. He was born in Canada, and we have Greek ancestry. My great-grandfather came over to work on the railroad in Canada, and then we established a family there, but then they moved back to Greece, and so I was able to attain dual citizenship because we did move to Canada briefly when I was younger, and I became a, a citizen, and I looked at the state of throwing in the United States, and everyone was so good, and I was pretty good but not like a superstar so I thought it would be a great way to continue my throwing career as a professional and keep going and I really enjoyed my experiences throwing for Canada I got to travel all over the world and meet people from, from so many different places 
So what would you say is your your most beloved or favorite memory from competing abroad? Really just meeting the different people that I had a chance to, to talk with and you know, doing a lot of sightseeing and meet people from different cultures. And, and those are things I get to do a lot now as a coach, especially in Nebraska, because we have a great recruiting budget and I get to travel overseas frequently. But as an athlete, it was also new. And I think you get focused in on taking care of your competition. But when I get a little bit older, a little more maybe mature, I also wanted to involve some sightseeing. So I was able to see a lot of different places around the world and not just go and see the hotel in London or Paris. I actually got to visit those places and spend some time uh, sightseeing in addition to my training. Right. Okay. So I want to share with everybody sort of, I guess, our relationship and where that that started and and basically i i've known you or known about you since 2003 when i was a freshman at at uh, penn state and you know for for my perspective my coach my coach at penn state mark Gottdanker, always held you in very high regard and i would say you know he would frequently mention um your results as a coach and that you were probably one of the best coaches in the big 10 at the time and that includes, you know, guys like uh, John Smith were in there, and he had, you know, great respect for John as well. Um, but for me, my, you know, those first five years of getting to know you basically revolved around um, me getting beat on by guys like John Hickey, Andy Bands, uh, I think AJ Curtis was throwing discus at the time, Shane Meyer. So. For people out there that don't know these names, and, and I think that this is this sort of speaks to your coaching capability, is that none of these guys were either like the best recruits in the country. None of them were these large hulking men that are six five, six six um, freaks. For for us, and I, I I should mention Ken Kemeny was another guy in there that was a, a powerhouse as well. Um, so during that time when I was in the Big Ten, you I, Iowa was stacked with with throwers, and who else was there? It was Adam Hamilton was in there. And now now that I keep thinking about it, it was like every single event you guys had, you know, monster throwers. The jab, the one javelin thrower, I forget his name as well. Yeah, we had guys like Dan Ralph, uh, Bill Newman. Yeah, Newman. And, and we had um, one of the good guys we had was Tim Broderson. I don't know if that was exactly in that era. He won two Big Ten titles in the discus, and he was 5'10", 225, and he beat, uh, his senior year, he beat Carl Erickson, who was like a 210-footer in high school from Minnesota. Tim threw 170 in high school. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I think that that's, it, that's something for me that, you know, we always would, we would come to the Big Ten championships and we would see, you know, especially Hickey, you'd see Hickey and Ken Kemeny was not that large, not that tall at all. And, you know, Shane Meyer wasn't much bigger than myself. And we'd always sit there like, these kids aren't even that big. They're not, they're not, you know, maybe six feet tall and consistently throwing high 18s, low 19s, um, dropping bombs in the discus and winning the Big Ten title. And I, you know, for me, during that time frame, I, I think Shane and, and John won the Big Tens like, three or four times while I was competing as a shot putter, you know, between, you know, 2003 and 2007 at, at Penn State. So I think, you know, I, I got to talk to you about this a little bit when when you came out to visit 
uh, at Garage Strength just this past month. And I think that the biggest thing that I see is is in college coaching is that a lot of college coaches will sit there and say, oh, well, how tall is he? You know, well, if he's not over six feet tall, well, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with him. And I think that one thing that really, really sticks true with you is that it seems as though you don't care, you know, yeah, you might care a little bit about their size, but at the end of the day, if they can throw, they can throw, and it doesn't matter. You know that your coaching is more than capable enough to get these guys to that next level and to, to compete on the national level and, and subsequently to win numerous conference titles and, and numerous, you know, uh, All-American titles and even NCAA championships. So I guess my question is, is like, what, what is it specifically that you were looking for in these throwers and what is it that you find to be so appealing in those smaller guys or, or what is, are you looking for the smaller guys? Or you just not care. You're just looking more for, you know, the characteristics uh, and their, their, uh, their character traits or, or what is it specifically that you think has led so, so much to, to your great success? I think a lot of it, you know, when you get into recruiting, it all kind of starts with a performance on the piece of paper, and then you can expand that out to, you know, you get to know the, the, the prospective student athlete and find out what kind of person they are and what's important to them and, and kind of what motivates them and what they demand of themselves. And a lot of times if I hear conversations like with coaches and maybe other people that are in the area that know the thrower and they're not saying positive things or the athletes telling me like, yeah, I really don't like to work out. And you know, and I, I got, I don't have good grades cause I'm lazy. And I, I hear those kind of things and I really back off from the, from the recruits. If I don't, if I don't hear the right things that I want to hear, they don't have uh, that intrinsic motivation. They don't demand excellent, uh, excellence of themselves and they're not taking advantage of the opportunity they have because of their talent and hard work, then those aren't the kind of people I want to have in my, in my program. I, I really don't look at height and weight all that much. You know, I think sometimes you have to look at those things. They're, they're factors, but you got to find out what's making the shot put or discus go far for the high school athlete. And it's, it's also their internal drive. It's not just their, their physical characteristics. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that, I think that that just from the outside of the NCAA looking in, I think that that, I mean, I think that that's the most overlooked aspect of, of recruiting. And I think everything, it's clear that you do a really good job just, you know, siphoning that out of everybody and then, and then seeing what you can get out of them. And I think that sort of, that sort of leads me into the next question is, is what do you think unites guys like, John Hickey and Shane Meyer and and all the and Ken Kemeny these these guys that were five ten I think John might have been like five nine or something but I and and one funny story about uh, Hickey is I remember being at at Indiana and he was weighing in a shot and this was before tungsten shots were were ever made and I remember I think you had taken a shell of a twelve pounder. Or maybe it might have been a six kilo, an, an indoor shot, and you had taken it and drained it. And I don't know if you put in tungsten or something, but you had you ended up making like a smaller size indoor shot. And I I don't know if I'm making this up, but I swear, Hickey weighed in a smaller size indoor shot that had like a little nub on the the top of it that they weren't going to let him compete in. And I remember looking at this kid thinking like, 
John John's hand was like the size of a seven year old's hand. And he's and the you know, you could see it in his head like, shoot, I really hope they let this pass, like because he's sitting there going, you know, he's got these tiny hands and the and the indoor shot for a sixteen pounder is the size of a watermelon at the time and and I just remember thinking like, dude, knowing you as a coach and knowing what you've done in, in preparation leading up to that, and then at the same time knowing like you understood every little detail. And I, and I think that that's one thing too, that, that, um, you know, what the, the athletes throwing for you, they, they compete for you because they see the work that you're putting in and they see the little things that you can do. Like, and, and, and I don't know, maybe you could clarify if you even remember the, this story with this, the, the little shot. And I think he did, they did end up weighing it in, but I'm not, I'm not positive. Yeah, I think that was kind of the time before there were there's there's like at the outdoor shot you've got the you can you can unscrew it and add weight. Well, the indoor shot really doesn't have that option. So we would come with like Gorilla Glue and special special glue I'd buy at the hardware store that had two different components, and they would come together and solidify the the, the plug. So we would weigh them in, and a lot of times we would just hammer the we bring our own little hammer, we'd hammer the plug down, we glue it back in. We even got to the point where we had the shot would weigh it was a little bit off and we had a we got a syringe from a training room and added water to it and then injected it into the <laughs> shot from the plug to make it weigh like an extra gram because it wouldn't weigh in so I, I, i've always learned from when i started coaching like you got to take care of your equipment and you got to be responsible for your equipment and the throwers usually aren't going to understand all those nuances. So you got to teach them how to do some of those things to get everything to, to weigh in just right and making sure everything's on point when it comes to your implements. So going back to, to the original question then, what, what would you say, you know, as far, you know, what, what was the training environment like with that, that group of guys and what was it, what was it specifically that you think, you know, could unite, you know, those smaller frame guys. I mean, even, even Percy now, he's not that big of a guy. And I think yeah, that's six two, about two sixty. So right. For a world-class thrower, that is pretty small for the discus. Right. And I, I think that that's the thing. It's like, for, from my outside perspective and as a coach is that I want to know what is it that you think that they have? And then what is it that you get out of them? And how, how have you in the past and how do you still to this day, consistently pull every single ounce out of these athletes to get them to throw as far as they do? Well, I think it goes in the training and it goes into how you set up your, your environment. You want to set up a good learning environment during practice where you know, you're working on technical things, you have your coaching cues, you're really working on the process, and you do that you know very frequently. But sometimes you just got to let it rip and let them put them throw the piss out of it in practice and see what they can do. And, and we had a practice like that the other day and we've got a girl that threw 56 feet last year as a sophomore and her best throw in training was about 52 last season. And she went out and threw about 56 feet in practice last Friday because we kind of set up that environment. That was the first time we've done that all fall. And we've got a really good freshman shot putter that was one of the best young throwers in the world. He threw 62-10 with a 16-pound shot in, in high school last year from South Africa. And he was throwing like the 6'9", like 63, 64 feet. 
and our other guy who threw right at 18 meters last year as a freshman, he was throwing about 18 meters in practice. So it's just a really good environment there. And sometimes you just got to let it rip in, in practice and kind of say screw technique, you know, but you can't do that too often. But right. a lot of it's about the daily process and making sure they train like champions and they they work together and it kind of creates that environment where everyone's thriving off each other and they're really motivated about working together and being the best group possible and they get a lot of personal satisfaction from coming out and, and putting three or four people in the final in the Big Ten Championship or going one-two in the conference or placing way higher than they were expected. That, that really motivates me as a coach as well. So what, you know, going based off that, that training environment and, and the system of learning, what, you know, or who, who has been that biggest influence or what coaches are, have been the biggest influence on you and your learning and then how, you know, you, you transfer that over to your, your athletes, who, who have those coaches been or, or, you know, leaders that you've looked up to, to sort of form your system of training? Well, I always think like the, for me, I was very fortunate when I was a little bit younger. I had two older brothers that were both baseball players and football players in high school. And I, I learned how to throw the shot in junior high, basically from PE class. And when I went into high school, my two older brothers were just finishing high school. And they said, well, you got a really good shot put coach, so you're not going to play baseball, basically is what my brothers told me. And so I got involved with a really good coach in high school, a guy named George Dunn Jr., and from my high school alone, we've won 14 Big Ten titles in the shot put. Uh, so that's pretty remarkable. He wrote and what? He wrote. Um, he wrote the throws manual. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And he actually started the education program for TAC when you know before it was USA Track and Field. He helped write the IAAF manual for the coaching education program. So I had a lot of great coaching influences around me when I was very young. So I kind of learned how to do it the right way. And back then he was communicating with people that you read about now, like Peter Cheney and, and uh, the coaches in Germany and the, a lot of the French coaches. He would, he would write letters to back then Andre Adresi, the, the Italian glider was a big deal back then. And he was writing letters back and forth to those coaches. He went out and took the time to learn how to do it. He was an average high school hurdler. So he really took the time to learn how to coach properly and develop uh, a system of training. And, you know, he tells me when I talk to my coach still now, he's 82 years old, you know, guys like Larry Judge, Art Venegas, Bob Niles, who's been a great high school coach in Illinois, all would communicate with him back in the, in the mid eighties about, about training. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. And I guess, so that would be for, from my perspective, not only are you going to sit there and learn from him, but you're going to learn his processes of learning. And I think that that's a lot of things that, you know, some coaches might overlook the value of, you know, you're not only just getting information from, from George, but you are also learning the traits of what it takes to be a good coach and to continually learn throughout your career. And I think that that's, that's something that I've taken notice of with you is that, you know, you, you, you left Iowa after, what, 17 years, I think it was, and then you, you go to Nebraska now. And I think, I guess that's sort of my next question is what what was the risk and, and what was the, you know, maybe even the reason behind leaving Iowa, moving to Nebraska, and, and now, like, what are your goals here at Nebraska and what do you what do you see yourself doing? And, and 
do you have a better support system? Is the training a little bit better? Is the is the environment better and all those things? And 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 where do you see yourself taking those lessons that you learned from George and and implementing them now at, at your new location at Nebraska? Well, I think you know when I took over at Iowa, you know nowadays I, I read like Eric Worski's like oh this throws play this is a great tradition at Iowa and the throws and well, when I took over. There was one Big Ten scorer, one guy scored sixth place in the discus in the previous ten years before I took over. So it was a it wasn't a great place for throwing. And so we were able to develop the program under the head coach Larry Wazorek. He was a he liked the throws, he was a distance guy, but he you know, he was coaching the field events and distance running previous to becoming the head coach. So we really developed that program. That was one of the key things he wanted to do is develop the throws and he was very supportive of everything to get the program to the level that we had it. And then when we combined genders, I think we started doing other things. We started putting a little more effort in the sprints and being a little bit more balanced team. And, you know, it hurt the throws program a little bit, but the overall team was better, which was more important to me than anything else. But in the long run, I think we, we had a change in head coaches and it, it appeared to me that they were going to be a little more sprint-based training and, and maybe have one or two good throwers. And I really like to develop groups of throwers. So I got a call from Coach Pepin here at Nebraska about taking over. And basically I came over and, and interviewed and accepted the position with the support of my wife, who was very, you know, very concerned about the move because she went to the University of Iowa. She lived there 26 years, and it was really hard for her to make the move, even though it's only four or five hour drive difference, you know, I eighty. But what we saw when we came here was the the potential to be an amazing program, and it's the facilities, the academic support system here. Uh, the success of the team, Coach Pepin is the most successful, successful conference-level college coach ever. So just being part of that kind of program and seeing how it works was like something that was really important for me and my personal development as a coach. And, you know, Coach Wazorek was like the nicest guy ever, a good coach. And Coach Pepin is a little bit different. He's really hard-nosed, and, you know, he has high expectations of himself and the staff. And to me, that really motivates me and drives me to be even more successful than I have been in the past. And so th that was kind of the main reason was to stay in the Big Ten, which is really important to me, but also have an opportunity to take my coaching to a whole nother level. And I think we're starting to approach that here. We're starting to do some great things in Nebraska. And, and I've really enjoyed my time here, and I hope I can stay forever. But really, you know, the, the goal is just one step at a time and keep trying to be successful and keep being better than we ever have been in the past. Yeah, I think, you know, just again, just from the outside looking in, I think seeing, you know, seeing the videos that you're posting on, on Instagram and on Facebook, and talking to you about the drills and and your you know how you transfer those drills over and then again even just seeing in those videos what I think is awesome about what I see is that you guys are right next to the football field and maybe that's a that could be a little bit of a pain if with the noise and stuff like that but at the same time I'm watching that freshman throw last week and he's getting after it and you can see the football team in the background and and for a meathead you know collegiate male. I think that that's got to be one of the best environments because you're sitting there almost trying to put a show on for the football players. Like, hey, you guys want to see some power? Like, watch the power that I can develop on these throws. I guess, 
I, I don't know. I, I want to see, like, you know, how do you guys feel about that in training? And, and is that is being semi-associated with that football team and, and I guess the strength and conditioning, like the, the history behind the strength and conditioning program there, does that, what kind of impact does that have on you guys? Or is it more like, you know, you just are trying to take your system that you developed at Iowa and then implement it into, you know, the Husker training system. And then, you know, is that, do you guys work together at all? Or, or are they trying to learn from you? Or are you trying to learn from them or, or whatever, you know? Well, I think it's a, it's a balance. You can see the football coaches, the strength coaches are very knowledgeable. They're a good group of guys. And one of the coaches there now was at Southern Illinois when John Smith was there. And he and I sat down and talked a little bit about training. But anytime you can get like an external motivation, like, hey, there's the football players over there. They're thinking they're big, bad guys. Well, let's take a look at what we're doing over here. We've got these guys that are strong and fast and powerful. You know, they might be able to take you down uh, if, if, if it came down to it. You know, we've got a great group. And I think they kind of they kind of stop and sometimes and watch us. And that's that's pretty exciting. And. And that kind of just shows to what the environment is in Nebraska, the way they have everything designed here for athletic facilities and the life skills complex and those kinds of things. Everyone integrates together. It's not just football is way over here doing their own thing. We're all involved together. And to me, that's that's really important. And that's a big difference than what I see, I've seen when I was at Iowa, especially, you know, the last few years there where they didn't have as much cooperation between, between sports. And that's just – just the way it is and, and that's the way it is probably about everywhere in, in college sports but just being in tune with what else is going on around you in sports in the program and knowing that they demand success is highly motivating for me as a coach if you don't succeed in Nebraska you're not going to be here very long and that's the case for coaches or administrators or even student athletes if they're not doing the right things we can't remove scholarships or anything like that but they're they're not going to be in our program if they're not doing the right things and taking care of business I think that you know you've I think you've recruited two of my throwers now and I from from being, you know, having two of my athletes get recruited by you at Nebraska, I even think like I, that one, one thing that stuck stuck out to me was even just the fact that they're they're even more intent on the nutritional side of of training, and that the school almost provides this guideline for overall recovery whereas you know a lot of these schools it's sort of like okay you come in you train you have a really nice gym you have a really nice facility and you have a good strength coach but then and a good coach you know for that specific sport but then when you leave there's really no guidance on on nutrition or guidance on sleep or anything like that and I guess have you seen or noticed even from just being at Nebraska compared to you know previous schools a, a very big difference based off of recovery and has that altered or improved your system of training oh yeah absolutely i think the support system here is amazing I'll give you an example when i was at iowa and again i was a great place uh we had a strength coach who was also the nutritionist i think that has changed since then but here we have four full-time sports nutritionists on staff just for athletes we have three full-time sports psychologists just on staff for our student athletes we have a life skills program which kind of helps develop anything from writing skills to job shadowing internships we have five people in that office the second highest at another major university is two uh, for strength training we have a head strength coach 
And then we have three assistant coaches that just work with track and field. And our strength coach, Dan Reidenauer, his only job is to coach the throwers in strength training. That's his only, that's his only role. That's awesome. So he and I work closely together. We develop the programs together. We meet every two weeks and kind of review what's going on and what we're going to do next. And we're in communication all the time. So all those support systems are really important to develop a successful program. But the athletes have to take advantage of those systems. If, if they don't want to, we can't necessarily force them to go to the nutritionist or do certain things. But we really encourage them to use those things. And we, have, we also have a sports performance lab. For example, tomorrow I've got five athletes that have had some injuries over the last two years, nothing too serious, but they're all going to go do a movement screen and do like a three-dimensional model of how they're, how they're moving, and then we'll look for weaknesses, then we'll develop a plan through athletic medicine and strength training on how to improve those weaknesses or imbalances they have in their body. So it's really a total system here that can help student-athletes develop to the highest level. Yeah, and I think so. I think I mean that stuff's awesome, and it's awesome just to see, especially with the three D models, is seeing the biomechanics behind everything, and then where where they might be lacking in a throw because of a, a of an inefficient movement or a you know a muscle system that might be shut off or whatever. Um, but that's sort of where I wanted to take the next question was because you've coached the jumps and you do have a you do have a background in the jumps and you've coached an NCAA champion in the long jump is where what principles do you see you know mechanically strength wise technique wise that you've sort of learned maybe even from coaching the jumps or from coaching the throws that has transferred over to the other areas of of throwing or of jumping and and is there anything specific you see from the jumps world that is is has carried over into the uh, the throws world. Well, I think you know, good coaches are going to be good coaches, and you know, one of the things I learned from kind of the educational programs we have in the United States with USATF and the coaches association is there's a lot of commonalities in different events. So you're looking for those commonalities when you coach. So a lot of things I learned from coaching the jumps translate really well to say the javelin and how we do our training how we do our approach work the plyometrics because they're probably more similar to like a triple jumper or high jumper than they are to a shot putter and i think there's a lot of training concepts that can really be valid that transfer over from one event group to another whether it's how to train the nervous system properly how to recover how to peak so i think any good coach would want to be able to learn multiple events so they can coach in an environment they're not comfortable in and it forces them to learn how to be better as an overall coach as well just like i think if you read more articles about training you're more likely to find some new new things that you can put into your program you might not take everything out of that but you might find one little piece of the puzzle that can really work for you okay so scott i want to know what Let's let's say you have you only can pick four lifts in the weight room. What what four specific movements do you see transfer best to the shot put and the discus? I think the most common thing. I, if I had to pick one lift to do, I would do I would do a power clean. My second lift would probably be a, a squat. The third lift would be probably the bench, and the third lift, the fourth lift would be either like a snatch or a deadlift, depending on the technical qualities of the athlete. If they're more strength-based, I might have them do deadlifts. If they're more of a speed-based athlete, we might do more snatches. 
Okay. So now, next question is, you know, and thrown against Shane Meyer when you were at Iowa and, and him being one of the best gliders um, in the NCAA, and I think he threw mid-19s with the glide. Um, how do you differentiate between having someone be a glider and having someone be a spinner? And do you think that there's a negative to either one of those, or does that just come back to their, you know, whatever it is that you're, whatever tool you're using to analyze what technique best fits them? I think there, there comes a point with every coach when they're coaching an athlete, maybe at a younger level or even more advanced level in college, they, they want to try the spin. And I think you see it with a lot of female athletes in the United States that are switching to the spin. With the men, you know, the, almost all of them are spinners now. There's a couple exceptions. One of the gentlemen you work with that went to Lehigh, uh, Luke Waring, is an outstanding glider and can you know, be a world-class thrower using the glide. But I think a lot of those guys tried the spin and weren't successful at it. And it just might be their qualities that they have are going to be better suited toward the glide. So the, the shorter throwers have the advantage with the spin. You won't see probably many short gliders, but you might see tall spinners because they might be able to get a better range of motion on the ball uh, versus the path of acceleration they can get in, in the glide. So I think you got to find the best technique for the, for the athlete. And, you know, one rule of thumb when I was working with Coach Dunn, he switched me to the spin when I was in high school. I was the first spinner to win a state title in, in Illinois in 1987. And, I, and so I think that really helped me because I wouldn't have been as good as I was as a glider. So it's finding the right technique that fits the athlete. And it's the same with training. You don't want to do things that aren't going to benefit the athlete. You want to make them the best thrower possible. And doing things to make them look better or feel better might not necessarily be the best thing. You're here to train to throw far. And then there's some work you do to make them a better overall athlete, but the training needs to be focused in on making them a better thrower. So and what? I think that's where everything generates from what I do. What, what specific qualities would you try to use to – measure whether or not they should spin or they should glide? Well, you know, they're, they're, the old rule of thumb used to be like they had to throw like 160 in the discus, say in high school, before you'd switch them to the spin. Or in college, you might experiment in fall training how they're doing on half turns and how they're doing with maybe just stepping across a circle. We use a lot of med balls, and we'll, we'll try some spin-type stuff, even with like our top girl, Tony. I'm hoping he'll throw about 60 feet this year. You know, she's six, almost 6'4", six and she's a glider. She'll probably never change, but we'll do some half turns. We'll do some shuffle and turns, usually with med balls, just to kind of work on some of those overall throwing qualities. We'll throw a hammer with her because it helps her become, I think, a better overall thrower and athlete. But you got to find what works and, and really stick with it. Don't don't make a lot of changes just because you think they should be a spinner. It's it's what they're going to be good at, what they're going to succeed at. It's using their qualities that help them throw far and maximize those in the technique. So, so taking somebody like Shane, how long, or even you know, Tony, how long would you would you say like like how long did Shane try the spin for until you sat there and you're like, you know what, this is this isn't going to work. Like this kid's yeah. going to throw a lot better with the glide than he is with the with the spin. It was really, I think he threw, after a second year, he threw about 55 feet with the glide. And that summer, we, we spent a lot of time working on the spin, and we were throwing primarily the 14 and 6K shot. 
and it was going about 55, 56 feet with the lighter implement, and it just didn't look good. You know, he just wasn't moving very well. He wasn't quick in the ring. And I thought, well, with his strength levels, if we continue to develop his technique in the glide, he'll be much better off sticking with sticking with the glide. But I've had a few athletes, like you mentioned, Andy Bantz, who now works at Penn State in the compliance office. You know, Andy was a guy we switched right away to the spin, and he was a 58-footer in high school. And in the inter-squad meet that first year, he threw about 50-51 with the spin with the 16. So we thought, well, this is a this is a good thing for him. Right. Okay. So what what foundational principles do you use, you know, for, let's say, for the glide and then for the spin and the shot and then even for the discus? What principles do you sit there and say, okay, these are the three to four or five different principles that every single thrower has to use technique-wise to become an elite-level thrower? Well, if you look at the glide, you know, one of the things you're going to see in a lot of these stores, they're going to have a pretty good stance row. So you want to spend a lot of time working on the stance row, teaching them how to reverse properly, how to block properly from the stance row, and then kind of transitioning into different glides, maybe like a mini glide, or we do like a shot box drill where they drop off like a 12-inch box, stop and do a stance row. They'll do a shot box drill where they, they glide and keep going. And so the stance row is kind of the first thing we look at for gliders. Then... Most of the best throwers I've ever coached, we use the, the European model, which is kind of the short glide with a longer base. And with that, you want to have a quick uh, left leg. That's kind of the motor to the throw. And you want to spend as little time in the middle, either on the heel or land up on the ball of the toe and drive up. You don't want to have a pause in the middle. And we try to keep the shot put long and, long and back as far as you can, but the whole left side open up keep the shot put back and really focus on lifting the ball up from the middle. The glide kind of creates the horizontal velocity and then basically the stand throw creates the, the vertical forces. So we work on drive the left legs, stay long, wide base, and drive up into the into the finish. Okay. I think with the glide, those are kind of the basic principles we use as far as technique. With uh, the spin... A lot of times you're going to be a little narrower base, and it's going to be more of a, a, a turn and lifting action. It's more like uncorking, you're, you're corkscrewing upwards. It's kind of a lift and turn as soon as the left foot touches. Whereas the glide's more you're lifting from the back of the circle up to the middle. So with the, with the spin, it's more like stay level at the back of the circle, use your right leg to, to generate the, the power into the middle, as soon as your left foot touches, really focus on driving up into the finish. Okay. Now, do you think there's any difference between, let's say, the spin in the shot versus the spin implemented with the discus? Oh, definitely. And a lot of it's because the size of the circle, obviously. So you have to teach the thrower maybe a little different right leg action where they have to cut the foot in a little bit more in the shot put because, like, uh, for example, the guy we have now, Berger, he actually, his discus, tech, discus technique is pretty good. His shot put technique is not. He really lands early with the right foot instead of pre-turning it, but he can pre-turn it really well in the discus. So we're really working on trying to cut that right foot back under him. And the other big thing, I think, with the discus, it's more of a long sling. You drive everything forward and outward, whereas a spin, again, as soon as the left foot touches, you're working on those that vertical of the throw. Okay. So, 
you had mentioned when you were at Iowa, they had combined uh, programs, and that, that sort of leads me to where you are now with, with your situation in Nebraska is that you know, you've got an NCAA champion in Nick Percy who happened to beat one of my athletes, Sam Mattis, when he won the national title, so I'm going to throw that in as a jab at, at Sam. <laughs> uh, but using Nick and then – and now Berger, and you've got Tony, the glider, the female glider. What what differences do you see, you know, maybe volume or intensity-wise, between dealing with women versus dealing with men? Like, can they can can women lift a little bit more, or can they throw a little bit more? Or can men handle a higher intensity? Like, do you see any differences between the the genders, or is it pretty much you know universal that all the principles are the same? Well, I think you probably know a lot about that as well. I'd like to hear what you think. But I think with women, from before I started coaching women, I talked to a lot of coaches that worked with women previously, and, and they kind of feel like you can train women harder a little bit longer because the loads aren't as high as far as the, the overall weight, not necessarily the percentage, but the overall weight is slightly less. So you can train them a little higher, a little longer, and push the intensity a little bit more. And that's kind of true with what we do. We kind of they kind of train a little harder, a little bit longer. They they don't peak the same way. We we do more of a speed development program for men when it comes to peaking. Um, if we do heavy lift, it might be like eighty percent on an Olympic lift, or they, I might let them go heavy in the bench for the shot discus guys. I think that's somewhat irrelevant when it comes to to peaking. It makes them just feel better. Right. But uh, with women, we, we tend to stick with the heavier implements a little bit longer as well. And those are kind of the big differences. I'm sure there's a lot of physiological differences that I don't quite understand. But the, the, the experience I've had is we tend to train them with the heavier implements a little bit longer, train them a little harder in the weight room a little bit longer as well. Okay. What do you do with your women? I know you, you've had a lot of success in Olympic lifting. Is it a little bit different there as well? Um, it is a little, yeah, it's definitely different, especially if, if we're talking just strictly Olympic weightlifting, um, the women that I'll have weightlifting wise can train much more frequently at a higher intensity than the men. Um, so, I mean, a good example would be when I'm working with Haley Reichert, if, you know, she's a 48 K weightlifter and her best clean and jerk in competitions, 92 kilos she can frequently handle 85 to 90K um, in training, which is a very high percentage of her max. Whereas, you know, if I took, say, DJ or, or Jake Horse, let's use Jake for example, and his best clean and jerk is 155 kilos. If I had him taking that 140 to 150K, you know, lifts that I would frequently have Haley be doing, he would just get completely trashed. So I think... I've found women can handle much greater intensity, um, and I, I think that I think there's actually two things going on. I think there's a physiological reason behind it, and I think there's a technical reason. I think women in general tend to be much more technical, so they move a little bit better, um, they hit better positions, and they can feel things a little bit better than than most men. Some men are very technically minded, but a lot of men just want to go in and just rip, you know. Um, but I also think I also think it has to do with there's something behind um, the physiological side of women are developed to I know it sounds ridiculous but they're here to, to have children like like evolution wise like they're they're here to have have children so they have to be very durable 
um, they're durable from an anatomical sense. So I think that they, they're actually built to handle a little bit more physiological stress in regards to this. And I, I could be completely off, but I've found, you know, that they can handle much higher intensities than the men can. Yeah, I would agree in the, in the throws. It's, it's very similar, and I kind of learned that from an early stage just by talking with other coaches and you know, my experience now with women for about five or six years, uh, a little more than that, but eight years, I guess. It's 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 very similar with uh, track and field. So you had mentioned some of the weights that you guys were using um, as far as throwing implements. Do you use varying implements, like – in the shot in the disc where you might be throwing a heavy implement or a light implement, or do you just stick to the competitive movement or the competitive weight? Well, we do a lot of different things. Let's say, for example, we have a couple freshmen that, you know, they're moving up from the 12 pound in high school to the 16 pound in the U S or six K internationally. You kind of have their heavy shot, but in my opinion, like that first six months or almost year should be the standard shot, put. they would throw the 7.26 or 16 pound. And then we will throw the 6K as kind of their lighter shot. And we'll do anything from the 6K to 7K as kind of a typical training session. And as they get older, we'll throw a lot of 8K plus shot puts for men. And for the women, like Tony yesterday just did stand throws with a 5K. And that's about as heavy as we go. We might go up to a 12 sometimes. But so we try to keep that variation within about two pounds. That's kind of the general rule of thumb. But say like in season, we would throw maybe the heavy and standard shots on Monday. We would throw standard and light shots on Wednesday and just a standard shot on Thursday for for most of our men, just because with the rhythm, especially in the spin, I think you don't want to do too much work at the end of the week with the implements that's too different because they can really throw off their timing. Okay. But with women, we tend to, we tend to keep the heavy shot put throughout the week and off season, we, we do a lot of variations. We try to match them up. We have our, our lifting is set up and training is set up where they have two really explosive days and two what I would call power days. So the explosive days are the med, the quick med ball, plyometrics, their Olympic lifting, those sort of things. And we generally throw the standard light shots on those days. And then the power days where we're doing our squats and our benches, those sort of movements, heavier med balls, not as explosively. That's when they throw the heavy shots. So – how many days a week would you have have each you know each athlete throw let's say out of season how many days a week are you going to have them throw versus in season does that change does it vary from athlete to athlete or is it is that pretty standard where you know they maybe they throw the exact same amount how many days a week would would you say that you guys are throwing well, it is very individualized for each athlete, but I think they're doing some type of throwing movements almost every day, like five days a week when we're in our in our training in the fall. But one day might be med balls. I get the example of Tony just doing stand throws on, on Monday. You know, today I think she's going to do some med ball work. The next day she's going to throw hammer. The next day she's going to do another shot session. Then the, the Friday she'll do more throwing drills again with med ball for the shot put. So we're, we're varying it all the time. But if I had a general rule of thumb, I would say for most athletes, we're probably throwing five days a week and they're doing two shot, two discus, and maybe one really extensive drill day would be a general formula we would use this time of year. And then in season, they might throw three days a week 
and they would have like Monday would be throw both, Wednesday might be throw one implement that they're better at, then Thursday would be both implements again. Okay. All right, so before we get going, I want to ask one more specific question about the just strength qualities in general. And I want to, I sort of want to hear, you know, if you would sit there and say with your, let's, let's do the women first. If, so for my, for women, I have a benchmark for bench, clean, back squat, and maybe a plyometric or some explosive movement. What, what would you say that benchmark could be? And, and do you see it being, you know, different, those benchmark numbers being different from glide to spin, or are they pretty much the same with, with the women as far as throwing is concerned? Well, we don't look at it too much between the difference between a spinner and a glider, but I've got some general numbers we use for for strength indicators. But every thrower is going to have different qualities on why they throw far. So I think you got to kind of keep that in mind. But with women, I, I give this sheet to all my throwers, and I tell them if you want to be one of the top throwers in the NCAA, so let's say you're qualifying for the NCAA championship, you should be able to power clean at least 100 kilos, 90% of your body weight in the clean, squat 150% of your body weight, squat 175K, bench 100K, or 75 or 95% of your body weight. And for discus, those numbers are about 10% lower across the board. And for men, I have 165K in the power clean, or 140% of your body weight, 185% of your body weight in squat, or 230 kilos, which I don't what that is in American. 230 <laughs> is 507, I think. And then bench, 150% of your body weight or at least 170 kilos or about 385 pounds. So those would be the general numbers we talk about for our throwers. Like, if you want to be strong, this is kind of the comparable numbers that these athletes that are doing at the NCAA championships. They're at that level. So if, if you're not able to do that, what else, what else are you doing very well that's going to make the difference? Are you so fast in the circle where you can get 15 feet from your spin where you don't need to be super strong because your stand throw is only 48 feet, but you can get a full spin at 63 feet? Then maybe you don't need those type of strength numbers. But there's got to be some qualities that you have that are going to make you an exceptional thrower. And it's, technique is only one factor. What's, what's the men's percentage of body weight for back squat? I have... 150%. Okay. Okay. And those are numbers I just came up with with my experience and, and talking with other coaches. Right. I know Don Babbitt recently was talking about training and throwing, and he kind of had a chart with uh, how far male shot putters throw compared to their power clean. And most of the 20-meter shot putters are probably power cleaning 375 pounds okay. on average. Okay. Yeah, I'm writing this. I'm writing all this down here. I could send you the form. I could send you the information as well. Oh, I would. I would love to see that. I love. You know, I love playing around with those numbers and then just trying to see how I can, you know, pick and pull and put it into my own system of training and and you know work from from that. So, I guess so, Scott. Where where can can athletes find you or coaches find you if they want to ask you questions or get involved and and you know maybe bring you out for a camp or come to one of your camps at Nebraska or if they have a, a prospective athlete like where can they find you on social media or or your email or anything like that? Well, I'm on uh, the, the main so 
social media platform I use is Instagram because I, I had to kind of pick one and talking with uh, the youth of today, you know, it seems like that's the most popular right now. So it's just Scott Capos, all one word on Instagram. But I also have my own website um, that I have coaching videos on and a lot of coaching articles at digitaltrackandfield.com. And I have a whole section, I probably have 30 or 40 articles I wrote on the throws uh, on that website as well. So you can contact me via Instagram or if you want to learn more about some of the coaching strategies I use and techniques, you can look at digitaltrackandfield.com and, and go to the throw section. Okay, and and I'll 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 like to give a little shout out to Earthfed Muscle here. If you if you follow Scott at all on Facebook or on Instagram, you could see that his son is indeed Earthfed. He's uh, what, how old is he? Fourteen. He'll be uh, thirteen very soon. He he's just kind of a, a smash guy. He, <laughs> he plays football and he does a little bit of throwing and he's into diving and swimming and and we use Earthfed Muscle protein powder with him for recovery a couple days a week. And you know he really likes it, and he's he's kind of a freak show when it comes to being an athlete. I don't know if that'll continue down the road because he's a little more mature maybe than some of his classmates. But it's kind of fun to to be a part of that and just sit back and be a dad and not coach someone who's kind of fun to watch. But yeah, he really uh, enjoys enjoys the Earthfed Muscle products, and I wish we can do that with our athletes here. But I know that's something you're kind of working on with NCAA compliance and that sort of things because I think the products are excellent. Yeah, that, we appreciate that very much, and I, I'll I'll attest that the one picture of your of your boy looked like he's about nineteen years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's pretty. He's like five ten, one sixty five, and he's only in seventh grade. <laughs> so I think that that's something too that maybe I should have brought up earlier. But it, it's you know seeing from from the outside looking in too is that I, we, when when you were out here, we had talked about you potentially coaching his high school football team next year, which I think would be absolutely incredible that, you know, one of the coaches at Nebraska is coaching a, a junior high or, or a J, whatever, junior high high school football team. But I think that some things that people forget is even with, with coaching is how often, you know, you have to travel. And, and that maybe that's one, one question before we leave is like, how do you handle the travel and being away from your family as much as you are once the season starts to roll around? Well, that is difficult. That's, again, one of the reasons I wanted to come to Nebraska was because we have such a great indoor facility. We only travel like twice twice during the season, and so it's really exciting to be home and be around for all my, my kids' events. And one of the things I started doing more recently for me in recruiting is I really try not to go out and recruit on the weekends. I go during the week. Right. And okay. I have a volunteer coach now that's helping me, so that really helps the athletes. So I don't have to just be gone for one day and just have an off day and then I don't miss any practices, which I still try to somewhat do. I maybe miss one practice every couple of weeks with recruiting in the fall. But it is it is a tough balance and my family gets really involved. They're really supportive and they'll go on with me to spring break. They'll, we'll spend a week in Arizona and they'll come with me. They'll go on some other trips. They went to the Olympic trials. So I think getting them involved with the athletes and having that camaraderie with my family and the athletes on the team has been really important to me as well. And because you know the, my family is my most, it's my priority for everything, and, and I'm not going to keep them separate. We try to really integrate those those two things together, and it's it's really important to me and it's important to the athletes I coach because they're going to see my family on recruiting visits, and they're going to know you know really understand how important 
having that life balance is to me. It's not just about being a superstar coach. You know, nothing's more important to me than being a great husband and father. Right. That's awesome. I mean, that's that's really good advice for everybody too to to prioritize all that stuff. So, all right. If uh, if you guys want to reach out to Scott, go to digital. It's digitaltrackandfield.com. Yes, sir. And if you check out at Scott Capos on Instagram, you can see updates of his of his uh, tracking the throwers at Nebraska and see what they're doing this coming year. I think there's going to be some really big performances from Nick and and Tony. And then you got it's Berger, right? Who's the yeah? Berger is another one of our top throwers. We've got a great uh, javelin thrower, uh, Brittany Wolchek, who won the Big Ten last year. We've got another girl from Pennsylvania who won the Big Ten a few years ago, is recovering from injury, and she'll be ready to go, Sarah Firestone. We've got a 185-foot girl in the discus. We've got a lot of really just high-level throwers at, at all events, and it's, it's going to be a really exciting season. The, the future is very bright here, and I'm really looking forward to 2018. It's kind of kind of getting anxious now that we're starting to get some good practice throws in. That's awesome. All right. All right, Scott. Well, thanks for being on Dane's platform. All right, Dane. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank right. you. Sounds good. At this time, we want to give a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Dane's Platform. Remember to look out for our next episode and check out our sponsors, Earth-Fed Muscle, The Acceleration Diet, and Holistic Encapsulations. Peace!